Good afternoon. My name is Sonia Waddell, and as president-elect of the VAE, as a past board member of the RABE, and as a regional economist here at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, I was given the honor of introducing our speaker today, Dr. Jeffrey Lacker, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Since I know Jeff doesn't like long introductions, in fact, I've seen him cut one of us off by walking to the podium while we were listing his accomplishments, um, I thought I should keep this brief, so I'm going to limit my introduction to three points. Um, first, Dr. Lacker joined the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond as an economist in 1989, became the director of research in 1999, and, was, and took office as president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond in 2004. Second, as president of the Richmond Fed, Dr. Lacker serves on the Federal Open Market Committee, the monetary policy-making arm of the Federal Reserve System. Having served on the committee for 12 years makes him the longest-serving president on the FOMC and the second longest-serving participant after Chair Yellen. And three, Dr. Lacker received his bachelor's degree from Franklin Marshall College and his doctorate in economics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Go Badgers. So with that, I would like to bring up Dr. Jeffrey Lacker. Thank you very much, Sonia. I have never had the urge <clears throat> to cut off Sonia Waddell. <laughs> She's uh, a tremendous economist, does a great job for us, and uh, appreciate that kind introduction. Um, i get my glasses out. Um, so I feel like I've participated partially in a number of RABE meetings. My office is located just above uh, where we are right now, and uh, the Sound carries, and so uh, on many days in which the press of events kept me from attending your meeting, I nonetheless um, partially participated. I think this is the uh, this has to have the record for of all the speeches I've given, the shortest distance I had to travel uh, to uh, make it. So I'm, I'm very glad uh, to accept this invitation to speak to you today. I'm delighted. I um, hope all of you who are from out of town are enjoying your visit to Richmond, and and um, uh, those of you who are here for the enjoying your visit to the Richmond Fed. So the question I want to discuss with you uh, this afternoon uh, should be familiar territory for economists and I think should be of interest to um, non-economists. How does a central bank know when to raise interest rates? So the backdrop of the discussion, of course, is the continuing speculation about when the uh, FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee, the as Sonia said, uh, policy-making arm of the Federal Reserve System, will again raise the target range for the federal funds rate. We last raised rates in December uh, after having kept the target near zero uh, for seven years. Now, one could ask how we knew then that it was at the appropriate time and not too soon or too late. Uh, more generally, how do we assess the appropriate level of interest rates? It might seem like educated guesswork akin to deciding whether a bowl of porridge is too hot, too cold, or just right. But policymakers, I'll show you, have more to go on uh, than just uh, subjective tastes. A, a systematic way uh, to get an answer to this question is to consider how a central bank moved interest rates uh, in response to changing economic data during a period in the past in which the central bank was generally thought uh, to be conducting policy in an effective way. So we can look to such past behavior, um, and it turns out that past behavior by the Fed and other central banks has been uh, captured in simple algebraic formulas, and these are called Taylor rules, after Professor John Taylor at Stanford University who first proposed uh, this framework uh, for uh, this in 1993. These uh, formulas, these uh, form, simple algebraic formulas, express a benchmark value of the federal funds rate as a function of measures of inflation and real activity. And these uh, benchmarks, as I'll argue, can be thought of as recommendations that a central bank can use uh, to guide policy. <clears throat> so I'm going to argue that central banks should pay very close attention to these benchmarks. I'll show you what they're saying right now for us. It's unrealistic, of course, to expect policymakers to follow an algebraic formula slavishly, moving policy rates mechanically in response to 
uh, changes in the formula value. Uh, moreover, there are several different versions of, of these uh, rules um, that have been proposed. All of them depend on unobserved variables, and there are various approaches to uh, how to estimate um, these unobserved variables. So Taylor rules don't provide a single unique policy prescription. Nonetheless, I will argue that it's important for policymakers to regularly compare the, the current value of their policy setting with a range of benchmarks that appear to collectively capture successful policy uh, conduct. And I'll show you two, and um, that'll give you a sense of, of, of my sentiment about interest rates, if, if, if you're not familiar with them already. Before I jump in, let me note that uh, my remarks reflect my own views and not uh, others within the Federal Reserve System or on the FOMC. It's our standard disclaimer. Uh, that you'll hear from a participant in the FOMC when they speak publicly. So, master clicker. Yes, mastery. So many of you are familiar with Taylor rules, uh, economists among you, but uh, to make sure we're all on the same page, um, let me begin with a simple uh, generic representation that uses words instead of a lot of algebra. <clears throat> so I'm going to walk you through this equation. Uh, on the left-hand side, um, it's abbreviated FFR, that's the policy rate. In the United States, it's the federal funds rate, the interbank uh, borrowing and lending rate. On the, on the right-hand side are four terms. The first is the short-term expected inflation rate, and the idea uh, behind that is that central banks take the expected rate of inflation into account when choosing the nominal policy rate. And more deeply, I guess you could say that the idea is that what matters for the effectiveness of policy is the real interest rate. So the difference between the federal funds rate on the left-hand side and this expected, uh, expected inflation rate. So it's the, the rate you know, that's adjusted for inflation, compensating for the change in purchasing power of money over time, uh, that's the real interest rate of relevance. So um, we take out, in essence, the expected inflation rate by putting it in the first term on the right-hand side. I'm going to skip the second term, come back to it. It's very important, um, but I'm going to skip it and go on to the last two terms. The third term uh, is um, one that depends on the gap between the actual inflation rate and the central bank's target value for inflation. So it's the actual inflation rate minus uh, the target. Our target is 2%, as I'll explain later. The other term uh, depends on uh, the gap between a measure of real activity, and think of employment as the most logical measure of real activity, and a reference value of that measure that corresponds to full resource utilization. <clears throat> now, both of these terms are intuitive. The coefficients, alpha 1 and alpha 2, are intended to be positive. Um, and they, they're intuitive because they match up with what you'd expect uh, to, to see in how policy rates respond to varying business cycle conditions. So when inflation is below target or, or employment is falling short, both of those terms are negative. Those terms would be negative, and they would indicate that interest rates should be lower than they otherwise would be. Conversely, when inflation exceeds the target or employment is um, uh, high, uh, labor markets are exceptionally tight, uh, these interest rates would be higher than they otherwise would be. So that's, that's the two gap terms there, um, and uh, that's how they affect the uh, the, the, the policy rate. So let me return to that second term on the right-hand side. Uh, it's usually referred to as the natural real rate or just the natural rate uh, because it represents the real federal funds rate that would prevail if the two gap terms were zero. So a little algebra in your mind. Suppose the gap terms are zero, so they're off the table. Then you have the federal funds rate equals the ex expected inflation rate plus, well, this is going to be the real interest rate that prevails when the gaps are zero. Um, so I'm going to have more to say about this term in a minute, much more, uh, and I'm going to show you some estimates of how it's varied over time. Uh, but uh, let me talk now about how to use Taylor rules, what these are good for, how to think about these rules. And there's really two different ways of thinking about Taylor rules. One is to take this equation and fit a version of it to historical data uh, and see how well it describes central bank behavior. And this was John Taylor's original emphasis in his 1993 article introducing this idea. It turns out that it can do very well. That, that was the contribution he made. In other words, you can find values for the coefficients, alpha 1 and alpha 2, 
um, such that the formula delivers predicted values for the funds rate that are fairly close to the values that actually occurred. And there's a little caveat to that that I'll return to, but um, it, it can track pretty well. You can always, almost always, you can find coefficients that fit. The other way to think, so it's, it's a way of saying, all right, here's something that summarizes how central banks have behaved in the past. That's one way to use Taylor rules. The other way is to think about the Taylor rule as prescriptive. Uh, that is, as a normative benchmark indicating how policymakers ought to behave, not for the central bank to follow mechanically down to the last decimal point, but as a general guide to good policy. And there are two complementary reasons that it makes sense to think of these as prescriptive guides. The first is that it turns out that simple rules can characterize U.S. monetary policy fairly well during periods when the FOMC was relatively successful. So I'm going to show you um, in a chart of inflation. This is three different measures of inflation. The red line is the familiar consumer price index. Uh, the green line is uh, the core PCE price index. That's the core price index for personal consumption expenditures. It comes from a, a different federal agency, and it's the one that sort of people prefer most, and this is the core version of that, so it's the version that strips out the volatile food and energy uh, components that um, uh, fluctuate uh, fairly significantly, but are, uh, whose movements are often reversed. And then the GDP deflator is a deflator that covers a broader set of purchases uh, in the economy. It includes not only consumption, but also investment goods and, and other components of GDP. Um, so, uh, the Taylor Rule turns out to fit fairly well during uh, the period that's known as the Great Moderation. And let me see if I can point this out with this laser. So the Great Moderation starts around there, the early 1980s, and it goes to just before, say, 2007, just before the Great Recession. Um, so it turns out that uh, the Taylor Rule fits fairly well during that period, and particularly in the period since 1993. And if you'll notice, since 1993, inflation has averaged fairly close to 2%, uh, which happens to be our current target. Now, simple rules also fit well in the other period, but with different coefficients. Uh, so, for example, uh, there's a, a time period you'll notice here in which the Fed did relatively poorly. Uh, so it, take a period that starts in about 1965 or 6 and extends through the very beginning of the 1980s. Uh, that's the so-called Great Inflation, a period when we did relatively poorly. The difference between the two equations, the one you fit for the Great Moderation and the one you fit for the Great in Inflation, is that during the Great Inflation, the Fed did not respond strongly enough to inflation. So the coefficient on the inflation gap wasn't high enough. In other words, there's a word for this called the Taylor Principle. The Fed's policy didn't satisfy the so-called Taylor Principle, which says that the central bank needs to respond more than one for one when the uh, inflation gap increases. I'll say uh, as well that there's additional support provided for the use of Taylor rules from artificial economies. Economists build model economies and they put these on computers and they estimate these models to come close to capturing macroeconomic behavior, the U.S. economy or other economies. And in those artificial economies, we have the luxury of doing experiments and trying out different policy strategies. And it turns out that the policy strategies embodied by the Taylor Rule do very well. They don't do perfectly. There's an optimal policy that's a little bit better. Uh, that takes into account some nonlinearities, but it gets very close to optimal policy with just a simple linear equation. Now, that's one reason, that it does pretty well when inflation performs very well, both performs well, both historically and in artificial economies. There's another important reason for policymakers to consult benchmark rules. It has to do with expectations. Now, inflation's a monetary phenomenon, in other words, it's solely up to the central bank in the long run, but it has to do with money, and money is something people hold over time. So they care about the future value of money. A wide range of intertemporal economic decisions are affected by how the Fed is expected to respond to inflation and employment gaps in the future. Indeed, a major lesson, 
perhaps the major lesson uh, that emerged from the macroeconomic experience of the 1970s is that expectations can easily become unhinged when the public loses confidence in the willingness of the central bank to take the actions necessary to keep inflation under control. So to anchor expectations, to maintain credibility, a central bank can try by communicating its intentions. For example, the FOMC has stated publicly that its goal is 2% average inflation. That's announced as our inflation goal, uh, as measured by the price index for personal consumption expenditures. But this wouldn't work for long if the central bank's actions uh, did not consistently follow suit. Market participants watch carefully how a central bank reacts to incoming measures of inflation and activity. And market participants try to divine how the central bank is likely to react to incoming data in the future. In other words, actions often speak louder than words. So aligning current policy closely with the way in which policy reacted at times in the past when expectations were relatively anchored is one way to minimize the risk that market expectations begin forecasting, market participants begin forecasting a divergence, a departure uh, by the central bank from uh, its objective or the patterns of behavior it displayed in the past. In other words, it's a way of minimizing the risk that credibility arose erodes by sticking to the behavior that was successful for us in the past. So in order to see what these, let me go back this way, to, in order to see what these benchmarks are telling us, we need estimates of some unobserved latent variables that appear on the right-hand side. Uh, I love the word latent variables. It always reminds me of a Wisconsin professor, econometrics professor of mine, Art Goldberger, great econometrics teacher, who used to say there's, there's nothing to an, excite the mind of an econometrician like a latent variable. <laughs> it doesn't take much, apparently. Um, so, for example, the employment gap can be thought of as the difference between the actual current unemployment rate and an unobserved natural rate of unemployment. The natural rate of unemployment can be thought of as the, a, a rate corresponding to full employment, what the unemployment rate would be uh, it, it, at, at full employment, or to, to put it a different way, um, the unemployment rate uh, that it would, the, the rate to which unemployment would converge in the absence of disturbances. So if we ran the economy forward, and everything was, was peachy keen for a couple of years, this is where unemployment would settle out. FOMC's members' last projection of this figure was uh, you know, the natural unemployment rate was from, ranged from 4.7 to 5.0 percent. This appeared in the summary of economic projections uh, that we um, uh, distribute after every other meeting. We're asked to, all the participants are polled for their forecasts of GDP growth um, and uh, unemployment and inflation and the funds rate, and also what, where we think some of these variables will go in the longer run. And the longer run expectation for the unemployment rate um, by, by FOMC members ranges from 4.7 to 5.0%. Now I'm going to use historical figures that were uh, constructed by the Congressional Budget Office. These are widely used um, objective estimates. In their latest estimate for the second quarter, uh, this natural rate of unemployment is 4.8%, not far from, the, right within the, the FOMC range. And that's similar to many other estimates right now. The actual unemployment rate was 4.9% in August. So the employment gap is essentially zero now, one-tenth of a percent. Uh, but that's uh, virtually zero as these things go. So the expected inflation rate, that first term, also has an is an unobserved variable. Uh, represents the rate of change in the overall price level or purchasing power of money um, over uh, that market participants expect in the near term. A conventional way to proxy for uh, inflation expectations is the 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 lagged four quarter change in the core price index for personal consumption expenditures. Uh, and that's that green line that I showed you before. So you take the most recent four-quarter change in that, and you use that as a proxy for what people expect the next uh, couple of quarters to, to deliver by way of inflation. This currently stands at 1.6%. 
Um, and uh, that indicates a small negative inflation gap of four-tenths of a percent. In other words, the inflation is four-tenths of a percent below our target of 2%. Now, the, the thing labeled the natural real rate in this is the intercept term of the Taylor rule. So, you know, when you take out these other terms, it's just the constant term, uh, as it were. And it, it represents, the, as I said, the, 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 value, the appropriate value of the funds rate when the gap terms are zero and, um, uh, you know, inflation expectations are equal to our target. So this can be interpreted as the longer-run average uh, it real interest rate. Alternatively, you can interpret this as the real interest rate um, to which the federal funds rate would converge uh, in the absence of further disturbances. So if everything ran peachy keen for a few years, this is where the real rate would settle out. The way to think about a real interest rate, as always, is as a relative price. Um, so it's um, the price of goods and services in the future relative to today. And so it ought to vary with uh, real things that determine the relative supply and demand of goods and services today and in the future. Uh, so the relative demand is going to depend on what consumers expect by way of income growth. Um, and the relative supply is going to depend on the growth in the population, growth in working um, population, uh, availability of supply of workers, technology uh, that improves productive capability, immigration, regulatory environment that might change over the horizon, and so on. Over the last two or three decades, um, we have seen a decline in actual real interest rates. Uh, and one hypothesis for why this has happened is uh, the possibility that we are experiencing a secular decline in growth rates, uh, particularly since the end of the Great Recession. Uh, so some economists have suggested that for a variety of reasons, this is the norm we should expect going forward. And it's sort of beyond my scope here. You could devote a whole uh, talk uh, to this subject. Many people have. But I'll just note here that persistently slower growth would imply a persistently lower level of the real interest rate, uh, just because of the nature of the relative demand and supply situations um, that would play out over time. So this natural real interest rate is not observable, has to be estimated. Taylor's early implementation, his two equations, the first time he did this, assumed a very co a constant natural rate. He assumed that it was just 2%, and that fit the data pretty well when he was doing this work in the 90s. But actual rates have been trending down over the last couple of decades, and it now looks pretty convincing that uh, the natural rate ought to be viewed as a time-varying uh, parameter. So my next chart shows two estimates of this natural rate over time. One is a well-known measure now, uh, constructed by Thomas Laubach, who's the director of the Division of Monetary Affairs at the Board of Governors. That's one of the three big research divisions up there. And uh, John Williams, who's the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. And they've been doing this for going on 15 years now. There's an alternative shown there that uses a more agnostic methodology. It involves fewer restrictive assumptions. Uh, and it comes from two Richmond Fed economists. Uh, so I'm happy to promote their work, Christian Mathis and Thomas Lubick. Um, both of these estimates show the downward trend since the 90s, and uh, both estimates of the natural real rate are currently very close to zero uh, rather than the 2% rate that Taylor assumed. So my final chart uh, shows a representative uh, version of the Taylor rule. It's taken from Taylor's 1999 work. It uses two different assumptions about the natural rate. One uses Taylor's classic assumption of a constant 2%, natural real rate, and the other uses the Laubach-Williams estimate. So the red one's Laubach-Williams, and, um, and that's naturally below the one that uses a higher 2% value for R star. So you can see that during the Great Moderation, again, that's the period from 84 on, uh, the two, um, that the, both benchmarks tracked the actual Fed, federal funds rate fairly well. Monetary policy, as I argued before, um, uh, you could say performed reasonably well during this period. Inflation was low and stable, and the U.S. economy suffered just two relatively mild recessions. The figure also shows that, in contrast, during the period in the late 1960s and um, 1970s, 
the federal funds rate was significantly below the level of this benchmark. And this was a period of very poor monetary policy performance, as I, as I, I told you. Uh, inflation rates were high and quite variable. This was a period in which the Fed succumbed to political pressure to keep policy too accommodative. When inflation surged as a result, the Fed raised rates precipitously enough to send the economy into recession. This happened repeatedly, um, several times in this decade. And so this period is known as um, go-stop monetary policy. And it was brought to end by the strong anti-inflationary actions of uh, the Volcker FOMC in the early 1980s. So these look like useful policy benchmarks in the sense that good economic outcomes were realized when we tracked the rules pretty closely and significant deviations were associated with adverse results. I think the stability of inflation during the Great Moderation was undoubtedly aided by confidence in expectations of credibility in the Fed's commitment to react to incoming data in a way consistent with um, this uh, way of capturing uh, our behavior. So this, this final chart also shows that when the Great Recession hit in 2008, it drove these rule recommendations sharply negative. But now the economy's been expanding for some time. Labor markets have been steadily improving, reducing the size of the employment gap. And inflation has remained relatively close to target. And as a result, the prescriptions of these benchmark interest rate rules have been driven above zero. In the traditional rule with um, a 2% natural real rate, the federal funds rate recommendation was 3.3% in the second quarter. In the version using the Lawbuck-Williams estimate of the natural real rate, the federal funds rate recommendation was 1.5% in the second quarter, lower than the, the one with the fixed rate, um, but still well above the current value of the federal funds rate, which is 40 basis points. So even taking into account our estimates of the potential decline in the natural real interest rate, it appears that the funds rate should be significantly higher than it is now. That brings us up to the present. So what's on the horizon? The current economic outlook suggests that our benchmark rates are likely to continue to rise. Now, with steadily strengthening labor market that we've seen, including this morning's payroll employment report, and inflation now rising toward 2%, the gap between the policy rate and our benchmarks could continue to grow, and in any event, seems unlikely to shrink. As I've noted, a Taylor rule is best thought of as a policy guide, not a dictate, so we have to be uh, careful. We have to use these with care. Alternative approaches to implementing the, a Taylor rule produce alternative policy recommendations, and some are notably different from the ones I've shown. But still, a range of plausible Taylor rule recommendations lies almost entirely above zero now and is centered between the two that I've shown you. It's also true that there can be factors that cause a monetary policy appropriately to deviate from a simple rule. Indeed, even in times uh, when the Taylor rule I showed you fits the data pretty well, you, it's rarely an exact fit, and you'll notice some deviations from time to time. Concerns about risks emanating from global developments, for instance, might legitimately cause policymakers to hold rates temporarily below uh, rates uh, prescribed by a rule. But the success of these benchmarks as a good description of effective policy over time means that deviations should be neither too frequent uh, nor too persistent. Departing from established benchmarks risks muddling the public's understanding of monetary policy. In the last couple of years, U.S. monetary policy has been frequently described as data-dependent. By itself, however, that phrase conveys little beyond the premise that the current stance of monetary policy has not been irrevocably locked in. The relevant question is how does monetary policy depend on the data? Benchmarks like the Taylor Rule provide a concrete and quantitative answer to that question by linking policy to inflation and employment that feds to mandate goals. Responding to additional developments that are not clearly related to inflation and employment has the potential to confuse the public, increasing uncertainty about our future conduct and raising doubts about our commitment to our two goals. 
firm public understanding about how the Fed con conducts monetary policy is essential to achieving our goals. The historical record suggests that when uncertainty about future policy can, it, it is capable of destabilizing inflation expectations. As inflation pressures built in the 1960s and the Fed did not fully respond, the public's expectation about future policy became unanchored and gave, that gave rise to a spiral of inflationary instability that was extremely costly to remedy. One could argue that things are different now. It's always a popular argument. Um, but in this case, one could cite the diminished influence of labor unions or the reduced prevalence of commodity supply shocks. And central banks around the world have certainly learned much in the intervening years about the conduct of monetary policy. But those differences do not guarantee continued credibility. They only underscore the fact that if the Fed were to begin losing credibility, that erosion would likely play out very differently than it did in the 1960s and 70s. For economists, shifting expectations are very difficult to model with any confidence. Moreover, there are disturbing similarities between then and now that could undermine expectations, including recent challenges to the Fed's independence in the form of proposed legislative changes to our governance structure. I don't think we should be complacent about the effects such actions might have on inflation expectations. It's true that in principle we know the remedy for unraveling inflation expectations, raise rates rapidly. But in such a scenario, having to do it rapidly, it would be hard to calibrate policy settings carefully enough to avoid precipitating a contraction in real activity. So while inflation risks might not be fashionable these days, I believe we should pay close attention when our policy benchmarks move far away from our current policy rate. So with that, I thank you for your attention and would be happy to take your questions. Yes, sir. The uh, employment gap number, which is about zero, using the, the method of calculating that you're using. So the employment gap factor is near zero right mm -hmm. now. But if you use one of the other employment uh, mm -hmm. numbers, there's a fairly large gap. How, how do you reconcile sure. that? Yeah. No, it, it's, un, um, it's definitely the case that there are uh, workers who are outside the labor force uh, because they're not counted as the unemployed, um, and they, to some extent, represent a, a reserve of, of potentially employable resources. Uh, so the, the way um, unemployment's counted is they ask uh, survey participants, um, have you looked for work? They ask them a range of questions, but one of them is, um, have you uh, done any of the following activities to look for work in the last four weeks? So, if, so reading the newspaper for ads doesn't count. Going on an interview does count. Um, so there's certain actions you have to take to count as unemployed. Otherwise, you might want a job, but if you haven't done much about it in the last four weeks, you would not be counted as unemployed. So you'd be out of the labor force, but you'd, you'd fall in a category called discouraged workers, people who want a job but haven't done what's necessary to qualify as unemployment. So if you add those to the unemployment rate, you get a higher number. That's undeniable. That's always been true, though. So uh, it's always been the case that, that when the unemployment rate's about 5%, there's an extra res, uh, you know, residue of, of uh, discouraged workers out there. And so the question is, is there any more or less than usual uh, this time? And the answer is no. Uh, there's about the same number of discouraged workers that you would expect with the unemployment rate of 4.9%. Now, there's an additional utilization factor that's a little different this time. And it's uh, the n workers who are working part-time, uh, but say they're working part-time uh, for economic reasons. And, that, and that's interpreted as... Um, an expression of a desire to work full-time if they could. So the number of workers uh, that are working part-time for economic reasons is a bit elevated relative to where it has been in the past when the unemployment rate was 4.9 or 5%. So to the extent that there's... That, that's the only real extent in the data that you can see additional underutilization of res labor resources outside of what's measured by the typical unemployment rate. Um, so why is that? 
Um, so there's debates about this. One is that for some reason, there's just this slack out there. Um, but other, some economists have pointed to the, the effects of the Affordable Care Act, which provides a, a positive incentive for many firms to keep more workers under 30 hours per week than they otherwise would. Uh, the magnitude of that is uncertain. It's very difficult to estimate with any precision. It seems to explain some of the elevated level of part-time for economic reasons, um, but perhaps not all. So there is a little bit of residue there. Um, you know, more generally, um, we've had unemployment get down to 4%. We've had unemployment sort of um, bottom out at 5 We've had unemployment bottom out at 6 So there's some variability in time over the, the so-called natural rate, that benchmark itself. So these are difficult issues. It varies with demographic factors and the like. So um, I would throw this consideration into a, a, a bucket of uncertainty about measuring that gap, um, which is, is certainly undeniable, certainly there. But, um, you know, when you estimate something, you know, you, there's errors on either side. You could make mistakes on either side. And I think that's the situation we're in now. Uh, labor market could be tighter than 4.9 says. It could be looser than 4.9 says. I don't think we know. I think 4.9 is about our best estimate. Michael? You want a mic? Thank you. I was wondering if you could uh, talk about the reverse uh, overnight reverse repo rate um, and if that's still seen as a possible replacement for the federal funds rate or um, how that factors into some of the FOMC decisions, if there's an equivalent Taylor rule uh, and that sort of thing. Thank you. Gotcha. Boy. All right. Um, this is an extremely knowledgeable questioner. Uh, I know from having sat next to him at lunch, but if I hadn't sat next to him at lunch, this question would have revealed it. Um, he's asking about a, a program the Federal Reserve has called Overnight Reverse Repurchase uh, Agreements. So uh, this takes a little bit of explanation. Um, a repo uh, is a reverse, you know, a, a repurchase agreement is a contract where I give you cash, you give me securities. The next day, you know, you uh, buy the securities back from me at, you know, par plus, you know, uh, uh, a markup for the interest rate over the course of that um, period. Um, so the uh, Fed, uh, when it does reverse repurchase agreements, um, it's out in the market. It's taking securities on our books, and it's lending them to um, counterparties. And the counterparties are giving us cash. So we're borrowing cash. We're essentially accepting a deposit, only it's collateralized by this security transaction, and then it's reversed the next day. Overnight reverse, uh, reverse repurchase agreements. So it's our intervention outside the banking system to borrow money and to put a floor under interest rates that prevail outside the banking system. And why is that important? Well, we pay uh, an interest rate to banks on their deposits with us. So banks have deposits with us. It's a couple of trillion dollars. And we pay an interest rate now of 50 basis points. Um, banks uh, can borrow money from anyone and put it on deposit with us. And so the, the theory, and it's, it seems like it's the case, is that um, the interest rate we pay on reserves is enough to anchor other rates. But the slippage there is that it's costly for a bank to do the arbitrage of borrowing in the marketplace. They can borrow in the RP marketplace and put the money with us. There's a cost to that arbitrage. So there's, there are capital requirements that apply uh, and when they borrow and put on deposit with us, it expands their balance sheet, and so there's a there's a cost there, and it looks like the cost is about um, ten to fifteen basis points. So there's there's typically been a wedge between IOER, we call the interest rate on reserves, and uh, the RP rate. Um, when we were setting out to raise rates for the first time, there was some trepidation um, about the extent to which us raising the interest rate we pay on deposits would pull other rates with it. And so we instituted this program on an experimental basis um, in order to sort of add suspenders uh, on top of our belt and make sure that when we raise the interest rate on excess reserves, other market rates would come, uh, come along with it. Um, it turned out that other market rates have come along with it. It turns out that RP rates are above the the interest rate we set on this, this RP facility. Um, and um, uh, 
you know, as we've stated in our, our statements about this program, um, you know, we're, our intention is only really to use it as long as we, we feel like we need to, to be sure that um, it, market interest rates come along. I think the uh, experience since December suggests one should have a fair amount of confidence that uh, the R this RP facility is uh, relatively redundant and um, might not be needed going forward. You've asked, though, a deeper question. Um, we state our target in terms of the federal funds rate. The interest rate we pay on bank deposits also pulls the funds rate with it. Um, but one could ask, well, why target the funds rate? Why not target the RP rate? There are more participants in that market. It's a legitimate question. And as um, people who read the minutes of the last meeting very carefully would have discovered, it's we actually something we actually talked about uh, at the last meeting. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's something we have to think about. Um, this is new world. There's a lot that's different about the plumbing of how we do monetary policy, how we move rates around compared to before the crisis. It's a very different world with lots of reserves and interest on reserves. Before, we didn't pay interest on reserves. We kept it reserves very scarce and used the supply to move the price around. Um, so there are a lot of deep questions about how to do that um, in the way that's most effective and mo and and it um, provides a sort of efficient working money markets. Um, so um, I think it's an area for future research. encourage you to go into that since you're so smart. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, you have a long history of opposing raising rates. You have a long history of opposing raising rates uh, going back a number of years, although not recently. Are you willing to tell us where you stand now? Um, so this is a, I think you meant the reverse. Um, pretty sure you meant the reverse. Unless you're trying to trick me, um, I, uh, I dissented a couple of times last year, September and October, because I thought we should have raised rates then and got on with it. Um, I thought last June would have been appropriate um, in 2015. I didn't see why not. Um, but uh, so yeah, I'm, I, I've been on the early side among my colleagues in wanting to raise rates, um, and um, I'm still in that camp, and I have been this year. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think uh, the last meeting, um, uh, you know, would have been a good time uh, to, to move rates up. Um, I always keep my mind open going into a new meeting. I, I won't tell you, you know, I, I haven't made up my mind about the next meeting. I like to listen to my colleagues um, before I make up my mind. But um, certainly the evidence that I've shown you, the evidence on this graph towards the right end of the graph, to me, uh, suggests that the more time goes on uh, with, without an interest rate increase, the farther we're getting behind, and the, the, the greater the risks we may be running uh, going forward. There's a mic right here. There's one right in front of you there. Mm -hmm. Is it working? There we go. Do you think that the, the, the Fed activity in the Great Moderation, I think, was characterized by a lot of 25 and 50 basis point moves. And has there been this expectation created in the overall economy that that's how the Fed moves? And then the further apart we track uh, against the models, does that create some concern that if there gets to be too great of an overhang, you know, catching up just isn't, isn't possible or is beyond market expectation given the recent history? Uh, that's a good question. I think that's really germane. I mean, that. Um, you know, for now, I think that um, 25 basis points is about the right increment. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, for us to, to do smaller uh, increases would uh, reflect a little bit of spurious precision. Um, larger increases, I don't think we need to do. I, but I, if we do these in a timely way, I think we can keep up with 25 basis point increases. You know, the point about raising rates rapidly is that um, at times, like in the 60s and 70s, uh, there's a, a, a bit of a scramble sometimes with monetary policy to get rates where you need to go. And it's, it's, it's hard to calibrate the effect if you have to do it rapidly because if, if we do it over time, we can, we can set rates, move them, wait, move them, wait, move them, and judge and see from market reactions whether we're, we've got the, the path calibrated well enough. But if you, you have to do this very rapidly over the course of a couple of quarters, go up, couple hundred basis points, it's going to be really easy to overshoot. And that's what we've done typically in the past. So I think that's the, a big risk uh, that, um, you know, is, is on the sort of the upside of and associated with um, 
that um, you know with waiting too long. I think that's the major risk associated with um, you know not um, getting with the program as rapidly as we should. Other questions? One here. Really good question. So the question was, how does a $20 trillion debt figure in the model? I take you mean the federal debt. Um, so right now the U.S. Um, fiscal policy stance is a, a bit troubling. The size of the debt relative to the economy seems manageable, um, but uh, what's built into current law um, suggests um, a rising path of deficits going forward. Um, and um, that has the potential to create challenges for monetary policy. If it gave rise, if the size of the debt and our, our fiscal um, outlook gave rise to expectations uh, that um, our country would resort to inflationary finance, uh, which in part uh, was a factor in the 60s and 70s, I think that could, that could pose a headwind for us that it would be hard to push back on. And um, in, in some circumstances, you know, we might be unable to fully push back against. Um, that's a risk out there uh, for monetary policy, um, but it's a risk for our economy as well. I think that, um, you know, to the extent that that fiscal outlook reflects some imbalances, it would be uh, prudent and less costly to address them earlier uh, with adjustments that are phased in rather than waiting until um, more of a crisis atmosphere around our, our budget. All right, a double dip here. Last question. There's one right there. Yeah. One more question. Sitting next to me at lunch wasn't enough. Insatiably curious mind. Uh, uh, indeed. How, how has the, the NIRU or non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment factored in more recently into discussion, and has it mm -hmm. changed sort of over time in your experience? Yeah, so how we think about the natural rate of employment is, uh, or unemployment, has evolved over time. Um, in the 1960s, it was thought of as sort of a fixed parameter associated with just frictional elements in, in the labor market. I think as we've, um, in, the, in the 80s and 90s, developed a cap uh, the capacity to a model um, stochastic uh, economies with a lot of uncertainty, where uncertainty keeps unfolding uh, quarter after quarter. Um, we've, I, th I think we've understood that what we were thinking of as the natural rate of unemployment is, is something that is affected by and is buffeted by a lot of the shocks that um, we experienced. So, for example, um, uh, just take a crude sort of story about our recession, that the last recession, that uh, in essence, we all of a sudden we woke up and discovered that we'd built way more houses than we needed to, and we didn't need to build any more for a long time. So there's a sharp fall in employment and residential construction. Fine. Okay, what's a healthy economy to do with that? Well, the natural thing is for those resources, freed up resources, to be reallocated to other sectors to make other stuff that we would... Um, spend money on instead of new houses. Um, well, that's a process that's difficult and costly and takes time to unfold. And so the day we wake up, I mean, the day, you know, we discover that a couple of million residential construction workers are out of work, it's going to be hard to put them to work the next month. And so what you should think of as the natural rate of unemployment for that month ought to be pretty high. And so, you know, in 2000 and 10, say, you know, when unemployment got up to 10%, or 2011, when it's just creeping down to 9 or 8. You know, it's not clear the Fed could have achieved any much better, you know, given its policy tools at the time. Now, we can ask a separate question about getting into the recession, but given what had happened in the labor market, it's just, it's hard to imagine that through policy, um, uh, you know, policy manipulations alone, we could have achieved a much lower unemployment rate. So in that sense, Maybe the natural rate of unemployment fluctuates very frequently, and we need to think differently about it. Um, so this is sort of an emerging perspective, um, one that's in sort of the most advanced models we use, um, but hasn't yet made it into the popular way of thinking about it, which is that full employment is where we're going to get in the long run. So there's sort of two different ideas about the, uh, the natural rate of unemployment that I think 
you need to kind of keep both in mind at times. Well, you've been, oh, one more? Great. Don't apologize. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good question. So we, um, in case you're worried, um, we carry those, all our assets at um, book value. And um, so while it might reduce our remittances over time, it's, it, it, it'll play out okay for us. Um, we'll be able to conduct monetary policy fine, even if we suffer, you know, sort of um, book value, cap, you know, paper losses. Uh, that show up in sort of a footnote of our financial statement. Um, you know, over time, remittances, you know, might vary um, if the size of the portfolio went down. But, um, you know, it's it's not an impediment to us conducting monetary policy. That's the, the most important thing to keep in mind. So when, monetary policy always has some fiscal implications in the sense that movements in interest rate affect earnings on our portfolio. That affects how much we re- remit to Treasury over time. And it also affects the real market value of the Treasury's debt, and that has important effects. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I could go much further than that without getting tangled up, so I should probably stop there. I, I, there's, I think there's... Okay. Oh, how about one more? Can we do one more over there? I don't think so. I think that the target rate, so the question is, we, we did a bunch of other stuff in the recession, and I, I think the target, you know, our control of interest rates is going to be central. That's, exi- that's, that's core to what central banks do. There's extra stuff some central banks do. It's tangential. It's auxiliary. Um, it involves intervening in credit markets of various types to alter our portfolio and the public's portfolio. I think that's controversial. I think it'll take time for the profession to settle out on a view on whether those were constructive or not. Um, but uh, I think everyone agrees interest rate setting is core to central banking and always will be. Thank you very much. You've been a great audience.